you do like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I am Cam Wilson. And I am Sammy Shaw. Sammy, have you got your booster shot yet? I have not. I actually um, I don't qualify for my booster shot until February um, under the current system, right? Because mm. currently we're at five month wait. Yep. Um, and it's scary because I'm AstraZeneca. Mm. So according to some of the research, apparently AstraZeneca is not that effective against Omicron. So I'm masking like crazy now. But um, uh-huh. yeah, I'm desperately keen on getting my booster shot as quick as possible. Oh, yeah. Big time. I've got mine booked for next week, just before Christmas. Not Actually, not too soon. Oh. I was worried about having the like symptoms over, over the Christmas break. But interesting, I don't know if you've run into this as well. My mm-hmm. whole like end-of-year Christmas party celebrations, that kind of stuff, and going into family arrangements over the Christmas New Year's break has become very strategic. I'm constantly like weighing up. I'm like, what are the chances that I'll catch COVID here? Mm-hmm. Is this person like who I'm going to meet up with at this event? Is this a COVID safe venue? Is this a COVID safe friend of mine? Do I like trust them? And like, oh, like, oh, we're getting pretty close to Christmas now. So like, if I catch it, I'll probably have to be in isolation. So, you know, is it even worth it to go out and get coffee? It's all like going out now has become like almost like an, an epidemiological calculation in my head. Well, there's a, I know there's a friend of mine in, in Sydney, uh, uh, the comedian Gabby Bolt, and mm-hmm. she just right now announced that she's cancelling the rest of her shows. She had shows, you know, today, tomorrow and everything. And it's because she's worried about people, you know, just freaking out about COVID risk because of this whole Omicron stuff. So I think um, we're back to, you know, we have a thing every time lockdown ends, we go, finally, we're free. And then we're re- are reminded that no no we're still living in a pandemic you know you can leave your house but do you really want to so yeah it's uh it's a negotiation we're having to make every day yeah it feels like it's it's now it, we've really just decided this this pandemic is now a problem for individuals like mm-hmm. if you don't want to catch it yeah that's on you like you know the best way not to catch it is to like not go outside or whatever but like at least particularly in, in new south wales where omicron or, or like domicron as i've seen in discord <laughs> online is um is like obviously spreading like rife and numbers are like increasing like by crazy amounts just before christmas mm-hmm. before everyone travels around the country as well i don't know like i mean i, I mean i i, I think I do think it, this is endemic now. Like, I do think COVID is just something we'll probably have to deal with in some way or another for quite a long time, maybe forever. And and I'm sure it'll become less and less um, potent and our vaccines will continue to get better. But, like, right now it's, it's in the very uncomfortable time where it's like, well, I'm not going to, like, you know, completely hide out. But, like, also I don't really feel safe 
personally by being like, oh, whatever. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit stuck. Yeah, well, I've been listening to Alan Jones's new um, uh, live stream YouTube show because I was <laughs> researching for my own podcast, News Weekly, and um, you know he's a big, uh, he's very uh, against vaccine mandates, as is his frequent guest Pauline Hanson. So mm-hmm. you know what? I'm just convinced by their argument, which is forget it, just let's move on. This whole thing's fake. I know I'm bored of it too. (laughs) All right. So just some housekeeping before we get into all of our good stuff. First of all, Mm. as always, thank you so much to our patrons who support us doing this. Um, If you do want to support us, it means a lot. You know, we pay for hosting costs and our time. It's uh, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash murdocracy, M-u-r-d-o-c-r-a-c-y. Um, the second thing is we will be taking a summer break. Uh, we were traveling and we're all over the place, or at least I, I in fact, both of us are. We're, we're, we're going to go out and, you mm-hmm. know, speak to the people on the ground, see what's happening out there and report back. But that Probably means- catch Omicron, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we'll have a first-person account of what it's like when we come back. <laughs> we will, uh, our next episode will be on the 16th of January. So that I think that's three weeks off. So, you know, stay safe for the time. Enjoy some good Christmas and holiday cheer and, and we'll see you then. And my yeah. final thing before we get into our episode, which is by the way gonna be we're just gonna do a mailbag. We got a bunch of questions that listeners wanted to hear. We're gonna answer them and kind of go through them. Some about Murdoch, some about ourselves. Um so I'm looking forward to that. Um but the mm-hmm. final thing is um if you could we would love you to leave a review for our podcast. And I want to give all our listeners a little bit of a challenge because let's spice it up. Let's make this interesting. If you're listening, how about you leave a podcast review in the style of an Andrew Bolt column? I want you to really like, you know, lean into it <laughs> like like the, like the, you know, one of the main spokespersons for, you know, one of the main personalities of News Corp and tell us what he would think of Murdocracy. I, I think that would be a fun thing to do. Basically, what you what you're asking you to write is that murdocracy will bring about the end of Western civilization. <laughs> yes, and, and replace all white people. <laughs> yes, exactly, the great replacement. <laughs> On to News Corp news of the week, and the first story is wow. It's it's more proof yet that we really do live in a murdocracy. The new head of Australia's competition and consumer watchdog is a long-time insider with the Murdochs. Gina Cascotlieb is more than just a lawyer who's worked for Lachlan Murdoch. She's also a director of the Murdochs Family Trust, which is called Crudden Financial Services, uh, with a a 12.5% vote over it, as chosen by Lachlan Murdoch himself. Uh, She is now the head of the ACCC and will have a lot of power over, for instance, uh, acquisitions and, and different decisions by this very important business government body. Sammy, what do you think that it says about this government, our country, that such a powerful person who is currently literally, you know, enmeshed in the Murdoch empire is now going to be one of the top jobs in Australia? Well, okay, so there's a mixed thing here. One is definitely she's, um, you know, she's she's obviously got her relationship with the Murdochs in terms of Locke and Murdoch um, and have had had. Um, a fairly involved working relationship in in the stuff she's been managing, like the Murdoch Family Trust with a 12.5% vote. Prior to that, she was also been working as a lawyer in this area of um, in corporate law and competition law and everything like that. So, you know, there's obviously been, if you, if you work in corporate law in Australia, you're going to obviously end up at some point working with or for or against the Murdoch uh, empire. 
There's a thing I found, which is Alan Fells. He is a uh, professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne, but he also used to be the chairman of the ACCC uh, from 1995 to 2003. He's a big fan of Rod Sims, who's the previous chairman, who Rod has been, I think, the chairman for several years now. And he's written an article for The Conversations pointing out how much of a fan he is of Gina Cass-Gottlieb and also that she is deserving of this spot given her work experience and he's put her forward himself many times in the, over the last few years. Um, and his, he, he says it's largely down to her experience in competition law. It's down to the fact that she's helped so many companies navigate competition law that she knows where the loopholes are that need to be fixed. And that's the argument he puts forward. It's a bit convincing. There's definitely some merit to that. Uh, but at the same time, will she be divesting herself of the 12.5% vote in the Murdoch Family Trust? Because it does seem to be something of a um, conflict of interest, if you will, um, between herself and the ACCC. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I think there's no question that you have to kind of get out of something like that. Uh, can I be more cynical? I think that it is yeah. crazy that something like this is 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 like is happening. And I, and I know I know that you know if you are you know Australia is a small place. If you are involved in competition law, you are either working for the big dogs or against the big dogs, as mm-hmm. you say. But it's crazy that the person who we chose is the one who has been working and is is still at the moment working for those big dogs. You know, some of the the biggest dogs in the world. I um I I I don't know. Like, I mean, Look, it pain. is also the, and I know there's another aspect, all right, which is worth considering. I call this the Rita Panahi principle. Oh, yeah. Which is, all right, so the Rita Panahi principle is something I've entirely come up with, which is the idea that a woman of color is hosting a primetime TV show on a primetime TV channel, but we don't give her credit for the diversity achievement that it is because of the politics involved right and, and and all those things similarly this is the first time a woman is going to be the um you know the the, the top dog at the ACCC it's a pretty big achievement to have the chair um be a woman after you know the, since the ACCC's existence started basically so i think there's a level of credit that needs to be given there but it might not be given because of her association with murdoch <laughs> you know yeah. so that just yeah. something to that's, pinpoint that's, that's all but that's interesting mm-hmm. and, and can i actually uh, what you've raised there is a very yes. like, interesting point and this is something that's coming up in politics a lot at the moment as well where mm-hmm. you know we're we're totally in the time where it, it, it's it's not okay to not be in some way diverse, right? Like, you know, even conservative politics is kind of acknowledging that they need at least the appearance of diversity. But I find it with this, and and I don't know enough about um, Gina's specific politics and and I don't know how it would affect the ACCC, so don't take this as a comment directly on her, but more about the Mm -hmm. idea of, like, representation, which I think is an admirable goal. And and I should also say I'm I'm a very white man, so, like, you know, you can probably critique me Mm -hmm. from that. But the idea is that there are people who exist who are, you know, represent diverse demographics who don't necessarily bring, I think, like, you know, diverse perspectives to politics. And so, you know, for instance, a great example might be like, um, you know, Julia Bishop 
in the uh, in the Liberal Party, who you know is a woman, but was like a you know kind of an avowed like non-feminist, and so you know technically you know she improved the amount of gender diversity in the Liberal Party. Did she bring in a, a lot of pro-women policies? I think that you would be really uh, a stretch to kind of find that. I think when we talk about diversity, you know, you can't just. I think it's tokenistic just to bring someone in who kind of represents mm-hmm. the same, you know. Per, uh, potential views, but just happens to be, uh, you know, a different gender, a different race, a different, like, whatever. That being said, you know, I, I still think, you know, diversity is important, but, like, I think we are getting to the point where, we, you know, we need more than just the fact that, like, a, um, a you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a woman who's appointed to the head of the ACCC. I think, like, one thing that I do think that was convincing from um, my, my colleague at work, Bernard Keane, is he wrote... This appointment is a gift to the Murdochs to ensure their loyalty in an election campaign, to indicate the government will continuous to as will continue to assiduously look after the local interests of the Murdochs as it has been doing in the campaign against Google and Facebook based on the live stolen content, which is reaping the company tens of millions of dollars. I mean, look. You know, Bernard is is one of Australia's like leading cynics, and I, I don't think he would uh, begrudge me for saying that. But I mean, like you know, viewed in that kind of context, we have seen this government do a lot for News Corp in the Murdoch Empire. You know, mm-hmm. the news the news media bargaining code was an incredibly, incredibly pro a uh, big media, particularly News Corp policy. You know, they've done other stuff like you know, given all these grants and that kind of thing viewed through that lens, you know, maybe it's ticking more than one box. Maybe like, I'm not saying that Gina isn't an incredibly capable person, but there are many incredibly capable, <clears throat> but there are many incredibly capable people out there. Uh, right. it, it just so happens that this happens to shore up one of their allies for an upcoming election. Look, there's definitely that aspect. And all right. So I'm, I'm going to say two opposing things about this appointment. Um, the first is that there is, you know, and Bernard Keane has pointed out this out as well, there's a very good chance that this was a gift to the Murdochs from Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who who's responsible for her appointment, to say that, look, here's someone from your inner circle in charge of regulating your industry now, and that's, you know, a boon for the Murdoch Empire. And But also, it hopefully helps Josh Frydenberg stay in the good books of the Murdochs, especially after the whole job seeker, job keeper debacle. And maybe gives him a leg up against Peter Dutton, who's seen as king in waiting when it comes to the Liberal Party. So I think that's one argument that can be put forward against uh, uh, Gina Cascott-Lieb's appointment. There's another aspect, and this comes from my own personal experience and everything, is, you know, when I was working at the ABC, for example, I used to get criticized uh, by a lot of people um, in the Australian and conservative political media where they said, well, Sammy's a leftist. Sammy Shah is a leftist. Mm. And so clearly all of his coverage will be leftist and his politics and as a journalist will be leftist. And my argument always was, look, when I was in Pakistan, I was I'm obviously not the Taliban, but I was responsible for interviewing as a news producer members of the Taliban, extremely conservative people, people who for many reasons would want me dead for my own belief system. But as a journalist, I gave them the same level of fair shake, equal treatment as I did anyone else, you know, as much of an unbiased uh, coverage as I could. There's a level of professionalism that people who work in professional fields have to have. And, you know, we obviously allow for personal bias and stuff, but maybe Gina Cass Gottlieb being so high up in the in the Murdoch empire is down to her quality of work and professionalism. And she, when appointed this role, will be just as professional. I think 
you are giving a uh, a, a, a level of uh, you know taking people at their word, which I like. You know, I like to think that that's the case, and so I'm I'm crossing my fingers mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> hey, our second story today is about News Corp is looking to dive into one of Australia's favourite pastimes, gambling. Nine papers, Zoe Samius and Chris Root write that Rupert Murdoch's News Corp Australia is in the final stages of securing a wagering partner for the launch of its bookmaking business with two local outfits and an international company competing to take part in the joint venture. Now, they already have some involvement in gambling in Australia, but but this is kind of a really big step to to trying to make it a big part of their business. Sammy, what do you think about a company with so much control over enter, entertainment and, and content and really Australian culture deciding to go all in on gambling? It's a really weird thing. So in America, they already own Foxbet, which is a betting service as well. But Foxbet isn't as large or as influential as it's an alternative in Australia would be. And that's largely because gambling's role in Australia, I have never understood why a country that takes public health so seriously and involves itself, you know, you know, with taxpayer pays for one another's public health because of a Medicare system, which is a good thing, has such a free reign, has allowed such a free reign to the gambling industry. To me, it makes as little sense as the American obsession with guns, for example. And when I brought this up in public forums, I've had very senior journalists tell me, yeah, well, what about all the jobs? And my argument's always been, well, if that's your only defense for the gambling industry that brings in a lot of jobs, let's allow cocaine to be legal because cocaine industry does a lot of hiring. (laughs) Um, it, It just doesn't make sense to me. So if there's so much money to be made and so much influence to be had in this country, with the gambling industry, then of course News Corp is going to make a move into it. It makes complete sense because they know that their, you know, their biggest power comes from wielding political influence. And you know, gambling industry has a lot of political influence as well, alongside the news and all the other things that News Corp's kind of dipped into. They're the masters of diversification, and um, and this seems like such an inevitable decision. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, Australia, for I think for quite a while, actually had a more um, expansive, or, or, or it allowed more online gambling, uh, particularly to do with sports, than the US did, and that kind of got overturned in the last few years. And they've seen this explosion mm-hmm. in in gambling. Um, I mean, we've obviously always had like you know, um, uh, like pokies and that kind of stuff, where the where the pokey capital of the world or whatever. I mean, look, I, I I kind of personally, I flip between two perspectives on gambling, which is like, you know, I like the idea that adults or adults can do whatever, but particularly things like uh, poker machines, like uh, apps for your phone, which are gambling, like they just like, you know, they're, they're like, they light up your brain in a way that, you know, nothing natural does. Mm-hmm. And I almost think that they're like, you know, it, it, we, we need something to kind of deal with them because the, the, the way that they just like manipulate, you know, our base psychology, I think is just like, so I don't know. It's, I think it's really dangerous and, and damaging. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you're right. Like, you know, where there's money to be made, these guys will make it. And and I think, I mean, the one thing that I've seen with this explosion in the US, and I, I talk from the experience of um, watching the NBA a lot, which is, which has recently gotten into it is, it, it just feels so insidious about how what was an entertainment product and, and obviously has always been for selling things, but how because there's so much money in it, it becomes increasingly like normalized where people are talking 
about like betting odds. You know, they talk about sport through the way that like, oh, you know, the Brooklyn Nets are two to one favorites to beat, you know, the Denver Nuggets or whatever. Like how it becomes mm-hmm. just such a core part of it that I don't know. And, you know, that you see it, how it affects young people. You see how it affects like vulnerable people who don't have the money to spend on that stuff. I um yeah I I the 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 kind of I guess the the Puritan in me just like kind of thinks about it and just like oh I just kind of you know I wish that wasn't the case I I, I kind of hope that it doesn't do too well. <laughs> I like the only defense we have at this point against them is I hope it doesn't do too well. <laughs> Yes, sad, sad. Hey, um, there's some further developments on our favorite topic, which is, I'm speaking Mm -hmm. for for both of us, but maybe me. Uh, News Corp is forming its own division to focus on partnerships with tech giants, uh, and that's according to Ad News. We've spoken a bunch about this and and how we think it's one of the undercovered parts of News Corp's success at the moment. Uh, specifically, Specifically, we spoke about how the former head of the Australian New South Wales ACT and other prestige titles, Nicholas Gray, got given this position to head that up. Well, now he's got this new division under him, which he says is going to be for negotiating and implementing deals, growing relationships and further developing our platform dist- uh, distribution capabilities across social media, SEO, and uh, some other stuff as well. Uh, that was a d- direct quote uh, with him announcing this new department. Um, Sammy, the, f- the first thing is, should we do a little victory lap about <laughs> being right about how this is actually a really big thing? Well, I was thinking we deserve to do Victory Lab just based on the finale of um, uh, Succession. Because, I mean, spoilers. Spoiler alert. But yes, if you, you know, the large theme coming out of that is the is the way you know the, the Waystar has been involving itself in big tech and and largely, if you think about it, the the whole story of the three seasons so far has been their decision or their realization slowly that they need to go into big tech because otherwise they're going to be dead as an old media industry. And it just seems to be something that, you know, Rupert Murdoch realized a long time before before his counterpart in succession did because they've been doing this for a while. They've been investing for ages. And it's it's key little things like audience development and SEO that make a difference. I mean, I told you I was watching the Alan Jones live streams for the last few days. And uh, the numbers on those are abysmal. You know, my, you know, my Newsweekly podcast has more listeners than or viewers than Alan Jones's podcast does mm. at this point or his, or his live stream does. And so, oh, and fair enough. <laughs> but the thing is that he was part of the you know, the Sky News family, and his content when it went on YouTube would have was capable of having hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of views because they've invested so much time and money in SEO and audience development. Whereas now that he's on his own, he's probably going to realize just being on the platform doesn't guarantee an audience. If you build it, they will not come. You know, Newscope realized a long time ago, you have to build bridges for audiences to cross over. And they're now becoming masters of doing that. Yeah. And and I think the real takeaway from this is, of course, that we are also setting up our uh, own uh, division to focus on tech uh, mm-hmm. giant partnerships. So if you are interested, please apply. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We can't pay you any money at all, at all. In fact, you'd largely be giving us money if you do mm-hmm. it. But, you if know, you we think it's a great deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll pay you an exposure. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, um, now, Erin Mullen may not be running for politics yet, but she actually has made one move that makes it 
in my opinion, a little bit more likely, and that is signing with Sky News. Just last week, the sports presenter, who is a bit of a household name, I think, said that she had been approached to run for the Liberal Party in Eden Monaro, following the footsteps of her father, who is a former Senator Jim Mullen. She turned it down, but said she does have political ambitions. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the former co-host of the footy show called off negotiations with Nine to become a primetime talent with none other than Sky News. Sammy, in your opinion, is this the making of a future political superstar? So, um, yes, given the fact that she's Jim Molan's daughter, in and of itself, she would you know, um, and, and he's having stepped down now, and he has stepped down because of his cancer, it, she would seem like a natural person for the Liberal Party to approach to replace Jim. But uh, I'm not big on sports news and sports broadcasting overall in terms of I don't play sports, I don't watch sports, I have zero interest in it. She what? I had no re- idea. <laughs> <laughs> she is really a, a, a household name. Yeah, no, she, she's massive. I mean, being on the footy show, um, she's had a, quite a lot of, um, does seem like she's had a lot of stuff in her life that's gotten attention outside of her professional career or, or I guess, adjacent to it. I mean, mm-hmm. f- kind of famously, um, she was, she had an, an incident where she was accused of being racist. Let me pull it up now. I think it was, oh, that's right. She said. A dominant uh, name, right? Yeah. She said something that seemed like she was kind of making fun of, uh, yeah, like like a Pacific But good luck name. finding any Australian presenter, TV exactly, presenter exactly. particularly, it, who actually, hasn't said or done something Exactly, racist. exactly. It's actually a rite of passage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so here, here's the headline. Uh, nine broadcaster. So this is from this is from this year. Has told the court that she did not engage in r- casual racism when she repeatedly laughed about the mispronunciation of Polynesian, Chinese, Indian, and Japanese. Oh my God, there's so many different, <laughs> so many different uh, nationalities there and uh, names on the Two GB uh, Rugby League radio show. Oh, she's Are you suing- racist if you're making fun of every single person? No, exa- exactly. The, 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 the perfect uh, Australian media defense. I'm, I'm racist to everyone equally. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I mean, she she does get covered a lot in kind of tabloids as well that kind of speaks to her, her appeal as being known by everyone. Mm. Also, where she really, where she comes into um, my uh, interest area is that she has been a vocal spokesperson for the government around their online anti-trolling laws, which for already for me, kind of like, you know, it, it, it had my ante- antenna mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, going off because she's, of course, you know, like I said, related to the former senator um, and she was happily going out there to spruik these online reforms. And now she said that she wants to be, uh, you know, a politician in the future and she wants to go on Sky News, which I think is like, you know, it's a pretty, as far as things go in terms of getting the Liberal Party base on side, I think mm-hmm. turning up on Sky News a lot, you know, being a, a friendly face probably goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, look, if if she does want to get into politics, she's doing it the right way. She's definitely making all the right choices and taking all the right steps. And uh, I look forward to probably her winning a seat in not this election, but me most likely the next one and us having to contend with her politics. Then. <laughs> Can't wait. So for this episode, we thought we'd finish off the year with a bit of fun and go through some questions from our audience. Thank you very much to everyone who submitted them. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, some of them are about News Corp. Some of them are about us. Um, and uh, there's some good ones here. Sammy, uh, first of all, um, here's a question. How would the conversations go between the PM's office and the Daily Telegraph about 
positive news stories behind the scenes. Maybe maybe I'll broaden that out and say, how, how do you think that, uh, do you have any insight into the relationship between politicians' offices and uh, news publications about how they get these exclusives and drops? I mean, having worked in newsrooms, particularly in Pakistan, where something like this is quite common as well, one of the things that you start to realize is it's not usually or it doesn't need to be after a while, a formal request or even a wink, wink, nudge, nudge request. It just becomes a kind of expectation. So, you know, if they know that uh, if you're if you're part of the Liberal Party government and you know the Parliament, uh, sorry, the the uh, Prime Minister's office, you know that you've got a certain kind of beneficial relationship with certain media outlets, and um, they get access to certain stories before anyone else, and in return they publish some of your press releases or backgrounding information without looking at it too closely. And so that's largely how it works with, you know, you'll send them a press statement saying, oh, this is what we're releasing. And then they'll just publish it without really analyzing it, critiquing it very much. These things aren't really a formal, you know, phone call going, hey, I need you to publish this to make me look good. A, a, a document goes out, gets published, and therefore the looking good is an inadvertent side effect. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, all these things are transactional. Like I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, anyone in the PM's office or other offices, you know, has a deep affection for, you know, Rupert Murdoch and News Corp. What they have is a deep affection for using their, um, you know, their, their megaphone, their platform mm. to try and secure them election wins. And so I think that they view it, there's, there has been a cozy relationship and they kind of understand it that, you know, if, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll give you stuff that no one else has. That means that people have to read your papers if they want to know, for instance, about the new online safety laws or, or whatever mm-hmm. things get dropped in the newspaper every week. And the flip side is, well, if you want to get those, you know, you, you can't be too critical. You can't be unfair about how you cover as, as well. Otherwise, you'll kind of get cut out so yeah i think that like the, the stories would be like you know they are very chummy but that is you know not unique to news corp either like yes you know th- there's there's this there's this thing where the higher up kind of in a lot of political reporting for those people who get access who get those stories they become very friendly and i, I think that it is to some extent natural because you know from a journalist and in fact, in fact from both perspective they both want each other to like them to try and affect their coverage so they you know they hang out with them they you know drink with them they meet with them and all of that ends up i think you know whether intentionally or not um, uh, kind of shaping their coverage. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's a, you get a kind of like, you you must print this and then I will give you something good. But I do think that they, um, that, you know, there's a kind of real sense that, you know, I, I, I'm doing this so I get good stories and, and maybe if I'm not critical, well, someone else will be critical, but it's important just to get this stuff out there. So yeah, kind of suits all parties. Absolutely. Okay, next part, uh, next question. Do News Corp journalists discuss in private all the bad stuff their company does or are they blind to it? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Like, is there cognitive dissonance or not? I think is the real question being asked here, right? Like, do they, when they get together, think about the things that they're doing and the repercussions that they have and the lies, you know, or like, do they go, oh, I totally lied about something or, oh, I totally destroyed this person's life on purpose? Or is there a level of cognitive dissonance that makes them feel self-righteous about their actions and thus then blind to the repercussions of those? I think the cognitive dissonance kicks in. I think if you're doing what you do for long enough, you don't see the wrong in what you're doing because, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to 
you know, live with your own hypocrisy. So we convince ourselves of the righteousness of our actions. I think, I mean, the first thing is that, and we've said this before, I think, you know, probably at least the majority of, of journalists at News Corp do not yes. kind of get sucked into the kind of worst parts of it. And I think that there are a lot of We're talking about very there. few people yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The, the, the majority of them, are, you know, just want to do their job and are mostly allowed to do their job unencumbered. Um, and, and that kind of means that, you know, those people and having spoken to a lot of them, you know, they kind of, they wince at the, at that kind of stuff. They ignore it. They roll their eyes. They say, well, you know, like there's only so much I can do. And, and, you know, other media companies have their own kind of, uh, like rough edges as well. Um, and so kind of through all that, they just say, I'm just doing my bit. I have my head down. I'm doing good work. And, and I can't, you know, if, if I'm a reporter who works uh, at the, you know, like big advertiser or whatever, I, I can't spend my life stressing about, um, mm-hmm. you know, what Peter Credlin is saying on Sky News. And, and I totally understand that. And then as for the people who are, I think, doing that kind of stuff that I think most people are most critical of, the kind of like, um, you know, this week we didn't do Bad News Corp, Good News Corp, but there was, uh, you know, James Morrow, a, a frequent appearee on uh, these podcasts uh, in terms of being mentioned at least. Um, he had this, like, he gave a, a grades to all the people this year. And one of the things mm-hmm. he said was he gave Scott Morrison an A, which is an of absurd he thing because he had a, a shocking year. And the second thing is he also said that, you know, Scott Morrison was able to neutralise many of his problems early on and then in brackets like the vaccine rollout, you know, Brittany Higgins. And people like, you're saying he neutralized Brittany Higgins, mm-hmm. who, of course, um, has accused someone of rape and has opened up a massive um, uh, discussion on on the the broken culture inside Canberra and and to do particularly with alcohol and and sex and all that stuff. Um, she, like to say that, like you know, she she that that he neutralized it is not only true, yes. but it's also just like deeply disrespectful. So about those types, you know, the people who really are those like top you know, culture warriors, company men and women who do that. I mean, I think, you know, they, they to some extent know what they're doing, but they view it all as a game. It's a game and, and, and it's power and it's politics and they are, um, look, they, they, they know that they're doing it, but they kind of believe it's, it's all worth it and they'll, they'll do whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Gerard Henderson spends too much time thinking about, how he might actually sound to anyone who doesn't like him. Um, <laughs> so, you know, same thing with Joe Hildebrand. I think the Joe, the people who work with Joe Hildebrand must be rolling their eyes, but Joe Hildebrand doesn't have a moment of self reflection, um, and I think that's uh, that's why he is Joe Hildebrand. Yeah, it's 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 all, and I mean, like again, this isn't you know just kind of limited to. Um, you know, News Corp, but mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I mean, you really see the the worst instincts of it in, in many of the top publications in News Corp. It's just like, you know, these are people who want to protect the way that things are. You know, they want to protect people in power who they like. They want to protect people who like them, who are often, you know, well-paid media elites. Um, and yes. they, they, they just want to essentially, like, you know, run interference, you know, make it easy for the people that they're sympathetic to rather than tell the truth as is their, their you know, duty as a journalist. Um, and, and that's kind of how well, they get I mean, there's job. a level of self-delusion, right? If, like, and which I'm possibly guilty of. Like, you know, when I earlier said in this very episode um, about how when I was working at the ABC, I was diligent about my neutrality um, mm. because, you know, that's I'm professional. Who knows? That's probably me being completely delusional. And I was quite blatantly, obviously leftist in every single thing that I did and all the coverage that I put out there and all the stories that I covered. And I am fooling myself when I think that I was trying to be neutral and 
similarly, you know, someone like this, uh, Joel DeBando or whoever, uh, or Gerard Henderson or Bernard Keane might be going, not Bernard Keane, sorry, um, <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, any of these people who work for, right for the Australian, they might think, look at how neutral I'm being while the rest of us are going, oh, clearly you're no biased. Way. No way. <laughs> I, I, and I, I know you're, 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 you're just testing this out, but I mean, like, they, like, they, they know what they're doing. And like, yes, like they know what they're doing. They know what their job is there to do. Like, mm-hmm. and, and and it's how these structures, like these power structures, they reinforce themselves. Like you couldn't be a, you know, someone who was like a socialist reporter who was working for the Daily Telegraph, who would work their way up and become the edit, the political editor. You just couldn't like, and so, you know, yes. you get selected by these structures. And when you're there, you're expected what to do. All these kinds of things, um, yeah, and, and I think you know, no, no one thinks they're evil, of course, and and many of these yes. people are, are complex, but like they know that they're out there to kind of you know, uh, uh, you know, swing a political way, uh, right in a way that's favourable to certain interests, even just like hit notes that like portray current events in certain ways you know like fear of like immigration fear of having personal freedoms taken away all that stuff that is that is highly political um that that kind of comes with the job Mm -hmm. okay next question uh will there ever oh this is a good one Will there ever be a movie made on australian murdoch and their influence and i'm going to add a little bit of spy sammy who would you have Mm. cast in that movie Oh, so, okay, I don't think the movie will be made. I don't think okay. the movie's got any, the reason it has got anything to do with um, their influence on in, in Australia, I think it's more just the fact that Succession has now told the tale mm. so well oh, yeah. that, you know, anyone hoping to make their own version of it is now standing in the, under the shadow of Succession and no one, and that, and that shadow is very strong and uh, very deep and dark. And so, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see one at least anytime soon. Um, maybe there'll be some dramas that the next generation of Murdochs will have that will then become a new story in and of itself and someone in Australia can tell it. I think Succession has told the tale too well. If, however, there was one to be made, I mean, this might be me betraying uh, um, my own lack of knowledge of Australian actors, but I was going to say Sam Neill, but actually I think, I think it would be more interesting to cast against type. Mm. And I would say instead, the actor that you put into this um, to play Rupert Murdoch, which is obviously the main character that we're talking about over here, um, is Michael Caton. Interesting. Who Interesting. starred as Daryl mm. Kerrigan in the, the Castle, you know, the lead for actor from The Castle. Yeah. You put someone like that in who's got such a great understanding of comedic timing and, mm. and comedic energy and everything. And then you make them sinister. Oh, they would nail it. Oh, yeah. Hey, actually, that uh, that's a good point. I was thinking that there is that bombshell, which is that 2019 film that was about Fox News in the US as well, which I actually haven't seen. I should I should watch it, but that, that does have something to do oh, with it. Oh, the one with, um, uh, with uh, what's his name? Um, Russell Crowe as uh, the founder of Fox News. No, is no, that, is is that, that no I think that's a different one. Um, you're talking about... Uh, that's the TV series I'm thinking of. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, Russell Crowe, Fo- who... Uh, uh, the loudest voice where he played Rod- Roger Ailes. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. That's right. That's right. That's, that's right. Kind of that's right. I enjoyed that. Okay, here is my stunt casting. If there was mm. an Australian movie yes. or TV show about Australian News Corp, tell me what you think about this. Kind of vibing off the same, you know, um, idea that you had, which is the idea of finding a comedic actor 
to then turn their that power to then playing a serious role. What about Sean McAuliffe playing Andrew Bolt? Oh, that is a great choice. I think that would be really fun. I think he could do that. Would that would be really nice. Maybe I'll, I I'll, like that we'll idea. We'll pitch him on it. We'll send him an email so if he wants to do it. <laughs> we'll right, great, cool. uh, okay. Um, oh, and this kind of gets onto what we were talking about before. I really want to know whether you think News Corp is really the home of Australian hatchet job journalism or if other outlets love the hatchet just as much. Basically, is it unfair to single out News Corp for this shitty practice? I mean, look, you get the thing where many people often assume that Daily Mail is published by News Corp. I've seen it very often where people mm, get angry yeah, at right. the Daily Mail and go, bloody Rupert Murdoch. And no, it's a completely <laughs> different ownership. Um, it is very much its own beast. It's owned by someone entirely different and it has nothing to do with News Corp. And I would argue that there is no one worse, in, no journalistic enterprise in the Western world worse for society than the Daily Mail. Um you know, having been the subject of, of their coverage myself, I know the influence and impact mm. it has. And so, yes, I think, you know, to say that the, um, the the only people who do tabloid hatchet journalism in, Austra- in Australia is News Corp is unfair. I think Daily Mail does it more, does it more effectively and does it better um, or worse rather <laughs> than News Corp could ever hope to do even. Yeah. And the reason we decided to start this podcast was... It- it was because we want to focus on the news and in impact of of News Corp because it is it's not just that they do bad journalism which is not true they do a lot of great journalism mm-hmm. there's some bad journalism it's more about the way that they are happy to to direct their journalism to focus on something to use it like it's almost as if it's the eye of Sauron where they kind of they choose where to focus on it and that kind of has an incredible power by focusing on an issue by getting people to write about it they and they can really actually drive a lot of um, of social discussion, you know, of discourse of politics. That's kind of why we do it. There is some bad journalism and, and mm-hmm. you know, like we, we're happy to point it out. We're happy to point out the good stuff as well. But um, it, it's more complicated, at least to me, than like are they a, a, a good or bad at journalism? I, I guess a more a, 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 another question is, are they a good or bad influence on the whole? Now, that, maybe that's a bit more of a difficult question. <laughs> and finally, Sammy. Um, actually, two more, two more. Um, we're, we're getting a bit off okay. it. But... Um, what are your thoughts on the Matrix sequels? Oh, man. They're so bad. They're so <laughs> terrible. This utterly and completely ruined the legacy of the first Matrix. I saw the first Matrix the way it was meant to be seen, which is it had just come out of the cinema. I was in America, a student at the time. Yeah. We went to watch something else and no one knew about Matrix. There was no hype before the movie came out. So oh, people jealous. walked into I walked into it with my roommate uh, because we went to watch something else, tickets sold out. We're like, eh, let's go see the sci-fi film. And walked out with our minds blown and our understanding of the universe changed fundamentally, right? And that was amazing. And then two and three took all those Gnostic philosophies and and this understanding of of reality as a you know a hologram and all these kind of you know chaos magic meets um, quantum physics kind of theories that the uh, the, the Wachowskis had put into it and just turned it into really boring, dragged out philosophy one hundred and one bullshit um, with. Special effects that don't stand the test of time compared to the first movie as well, which, again, did so much better. Um, yeah, so I'm a big fan of the first movie, and I think the second and third, I pretend like they don't exist. And when I watch this new movie, I'm going to watch it as if the second and third movies never happened. I am going to be controversial here and say I actually thought the second one was quite good. I think it gets a bad rap. Why? Maybe, what did you maybe like about of, it? 
I rewatched it probably like a year ago, and it just like I thought it was just a really good movie, and and it, it suffers mm. from coming after an an excellent one of the best movies. I mean, it, it's right. hard to express just how well the first movie holds up. What like you know twenty years later, but I think the second one's quite good. I didn't actually make it to the third, so I can't tell you. I am excited for the new ones. Okay, and final question, Sammy. Yes. This is going to take all your expertise. I think you're the right person to answer this. Mm-hmm. Bring it. If a bear and a shark got into a fight, who would win? Oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll call it kind of neutral is... territory where it's maybe it's like uh, kind of like uh, just under waist height um, uh, water, so that the bear can kind of move mostly unencumbered, but the shark is able to move quite efficiently as well. See, here's the thing: um, if it, yeah, it, it, you know, the environment makes all the difference. If it's a neutral environment where they both are at their best. I would, even though I, I I have a great fear and and respect for the shark, um, and we're assuming in this case it's a great white shark. Um, I yep. would still put money on the bear because I think bear the pure strength and fury of a bear when completely you know un uncontrolled is a thing of wonder. Um, and and as a result, I think the shark gets a good bite in takes a chunk out of the bear, possibly even wounding the bear for life, but the bear will cut it to have life. I think once that shark, bear gets his claws into the shark, the shark's a dead creature. There's no coming back from it. Ooh, what about you? Uh, where do you put I'm, your money? As, as usual, we're actually going to disagree in this mm. one. I think in any environment where the, sh- the shark can kind of move, I think that kind of necessitates that a, that a bear is going to be uh, not at its best. So I'm, I'm going to give this one to the shark, I think. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it happen. All right. Yeah. I'd love, love to see it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is it for this year for us. Thank you all so much for listening. It has been great, um, you know, setting this up and, and, and start, you know, getting to meet the community, getting to dive into this stuff. You know, at times I was like, mm-hmm. before we launched it, I was like, you know, is there going to be enough? And then we have been like absolutely chock a block with stuff to talk about. So we are happy to keep it going into next year. Absolutely. Um, of course, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere. Join our Facebook group as well. Thanks to Natalie Sekolovska, uh, our producer, Kevin McLeod for theme music, the ABC for the recordings from the archive, Ruby Innes for our artwork, and Sammy, a huge heartfelt thank you to you. It has been such a joy to do this with you. I've had a great time. Thanks for asking me to do this, Cam. It's been so much fun ever since I've said yes. It's been endlessly entertaining watching all these news stories and developing a better understanding of the news landscape here in Australia. Um, And to you and to all our listeners, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.